Live from the JLE in London, join us for 20 minutes weekly with Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tetz, hosted by myself, Mena Reisner, as we delve into the hottest topics of the 21st century. From the origins of the universe, vaccine conspiracies, genetics and Jewish law, relationships and everything in between, you are listening to Conversations with Rabbi Tetz. Welcome back, Rabbi Tetz. Thank you very much again for joining us here. Following the last three episodes on marriage, there's been a lot of questions come in, and there's too many of them to really ask you and get a full answer. But if I could give you some quick questions, and we could just get a brief two-minute summary, although I'm sure you could probably give a podcast on each question. Does that sound okay? Great, and it's a pleasure to be back with you, Rabbi Amena. So, shoot. Thank you. Um, question number one, why are there less divorces amongst the ultra-Orthodox, the Frum community? They only date for five times, four times, ten times maybe, and by the secular, they know each other for years before. So uh, it's logically, there should be less divorces by the secular. They know each other better. Yes, that's a good observation and a great question. I think the answer here is speculative, but experience shows a number of factors. One is a commonality of personalities and goals and lifestyles and um, life aspirations. You know, when you've been living in a community with a certain set of values and you're marrying somebody very like-minded, and particularly when there's cultural similarity, so you can expect your wife to be very much like your mother. She can expect you to be very much like her father. After all, you've been praying in the same synagogue for the last 350 years. (laughs) So I think that's very important. Another one is the same aspirations and goals, so that there's a tremendous commonality of what we're trying to achieve. I think a third one is less focus on the individual nuances of personality and individuality, rather building a common goal rather than, you know, nitpicking about particulars. Another factor that seems to be very relevant is much less comparisons. Just to put this into contrast, you know, a young man in the secular world who might have had dozens of very meaningful relationships in the past has a tremendous number of comparisons to make. Whereas a boy from an ultra-Orthodox environment who's never been close to a girl ever before has no problematic comparisons or even even in indeed a standard of comparison, standard of comparison. I think those are very relevant factors. Some would point out that there may be negative factors as well. More stigma to divorce, um, more pain and um, you know, not fitting the fitting the religious model. So more reticence or hesitancy about getting divorced. I think that's less relevant than it used to be now that the Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox world is more open. And unfortunately, divorces are much more common now in the ultra-Orthodox world than they used to be. So that that sort of uh, stigma is less, but I think it's still a very real issue. Mm. At what point in seeking a partner should one contemplate compromising, let's say marrying a divorcee or other sorts of you know compromise from just the standards? At what point? I'm not sure I would use the word compromise at all. I think that that demeans the subject. You know, I think that um, a person who's got life experience and maybe has been married before, they have many advantages, you know, much more maturity. So I don't think we should think about it as compromise. I think what we should think about is suitability. And therefore, here's this person, a young woman, for example, she may be in her 30s, maybe she's 40, she hasn't been married. She thinks about sort of, let's say, compromise. I don't think that's right. What she needs to look for is somebody suitable for her personal situation. If that means somebody who himself is older, 
or has a a story or has children or I, I don't think it's a compromise. I think there's just a wise matching up of compatibility issues. And I would like to reframe this question rather than looking at compromise. I would phrase it as broadening the horizons of what the kind of person you'd be looking for. So if when you're 19 years old, you had a certain vision of what the partner should look like at this stage in your life because of whatever the variables may be, age, time has gone by, you might have mental health issues or more specific medical issues. It's just a question of broadening the scope. Let me put it one final way. I find sometimes people look too narrowly because they have preconceived notion of what they need or, let's put it this way, deserve. So a broader view of what might work for you, I think, is always appropriate, and perhaps even from the very beginning. Mm. Should one have a preference to marry from the same country, especially as there seems to be such a huge culture difference between them? That's a very interesting question. The question of cultural similarity, it is not only the country, by the way, it's a cultural similarity. Mm. So you may be living in England, but from a very traditional Ashkenazi background, the girl may be living in England too, but she comes from a very ethnic Iraqi background, that's an issue too. This cuts two ways, and we have a lot of experience in this subject. On the one hand, it's a, a very good, I wouldn't say guarantee, but surety or security in marriage to marry the boy next door or the girl next door. Once you have a commonality of expression, of language, of culture, there's just so much that falls into place that doesn't have to be worked at. On the other hand, marrying somebody from across a cultural divide can be very enriching and very attractive and, and, and in, enriching in general. I would say that um, there's no general rule. All else equal, it is probably safer to marry someone with a very strong cultural identity similar to oneself, but that's very far from an absolute rule. I would add, though, that we have seen over the years certain cultural mixes that work particularly well and some that work uh, or raise particular problems. For example, I would say the two people from similar backgrounds, again, as I said, that could work well. And then you get certain combinations. For example, just to give you what we've seen in the past, let's say a um, South African young man, for example, okay, or an English, British young man from a traditional, let's say, uh, society where male-female roles are very, let's call them traditional. He's marrying a very privileged young American girl from the New York area who has certain expectations that are based on certain feminist ideas, etc. There can be tensions. There can be tensions. When he's expecting her to do the dishes and certain other household chores and she thinks that's an insult to her womanhood, hmm. you can have tensions. On the other hand, on the other hand, an American boy or someone from a Western environment, whether it's English, American, whatever, marrying a girl from a European country, from Spain, from France, or a South American girl, particularly from a Sephardi background, where women's identity is very proudly and clearly defined, women in those societies very seldom come into conflict with the male ego. In other words, they express themselves in a tremendously powerful feminine leadership role in the home, but also look up to the man as a leader in his particular areas. That often works extremely well. So it depends what the cultural makes. Here we're talking very broadly, obviously. I'll give you another example. Let's say you have a genteel young man from South Africa or from Australia or from England marrying a girl with a very secular Israeli background. How do you handle a girl who's got a submachine gun? <laughs> you know, so uh, with great care, I would say. <laughs> so you see, girls from an Israeli secular background tend to be assertive. It's a culture that fosters opinionated and assertive natures. Nothing wrong with that, of course, but you need to be sure that it fits in 
with your cultural background. So I, w- I would end by saying this, that when there is a cultural divide, then perhaps a little bit more time should be devoted to make sure that there's, that there's a good mix. I'll leave you with a humorous example. I met a couple some years ago. She came from Uruguay, and he came from Romania. <laughs> they met right after the war in a displaced person's camp. They could not understand one word that each other said. They married anyway, Not could not understand one word. They said it was the most wonderful marriage. They never argued because they couldn't. <laughs> so that's highly recommended. Yeah. So someone asked if the marriage is very difficult. At what point can and at what point should one contemplate divorce? And are all marriages fixable? Okay, this is a difficult question. I'll give you the general rule. The general rule is that each situation is individual. Judaism certainly countenances divorce, there's no question about that, and it's there for a reason. It's a sadness. It's a sadness when a couple has to divorce. It's very seldom simple. Even in the best cases, there's often pain and difficulty. When children are involved, the pain can be excruciating, and it can complicate things extremely. So divorce is not a simple option, and yet it is there. It's meant to be used. So the general rule is this individual situation. And just like any other life decision, is the pain of maximizing this marriage and continuing less than the pain of the divorce? Which is the best or better of the options? Many times in life, you don't have an ideal option, but almost always you have a better option. And if you ask me, you know, should a business enterprise be abandoned and a new one begun, or should we fight through and make this business work? It depends on circumstances, what's been invested, what the pain is, what is the cost of starting again, and therefore this individual decision. With regard to your last question, can every marriage be perfected? I would venture to suggest that virtually all marriages can be perfected. The only question is, what is the cost? Just to give you an example, a woman came to see me once some years ago, and her husband was very problematic, very demanding, very immature. And I spelled out for her what it would take to make her marriage work. She would have to behave in a certain fashion, pandering to his ego and accommodating all his childish needs, etc. And it was very clear to me, and she very clear to her, that if she behaved in that fashion, the marriage would be fine. And she said, I see it. It could be perfected that way. I'm not prepared to bend myself into the kind of pretzel that I'd have to do to do that, and she decided to leave. And I think she was probably correct. But that's a personal decision. In other words, if you prepare to adapt yourself and adjust yourself in extreme enough fashion, you can probably live with anyone. And if you ask yourself, if I were alone on a desert island, and for the rest of my life, the only person I'd have access to would be this person, could I make it work? Pretty much probably close to always you could. Are you prepared to do that when there are other options? Can you bend yourself into that sort of a pretzel? That becomes a personal question. So could it be done theoretically? If you're a big enough person and accommodating enough, probably. Should you? Depends on a wise judgment about what the cost is likely to be. And when there's a form of abuse? You know, abuse is a very, very complicated subject, and I think it's a bit of an overused word and a bit of an overworked word today. So abuse ranges from downright uh, violence and abuse in which it almost all costs one needs to one needs to escape and yet you know we we know and the psychologists will tell you some people become addicted to their abuse and actually need it you know very very interesting how couples interact and how our relationships in fact can be very very complicated and messy and often one has the experience of being an outsider for example a child trying to interfere in parents' relationship and to their surprise discover that the parents actually need their twisted and complicated relations they both depend on it 
So it needs a wise and delicate hand in helping people in those situations. Obviously, in an abusive situation where there's only pain and damage, and the only solution, it's not the first resort, it's a last resort. First resort, obviously, is therapy and help. But as a last resort, absolutely, yes. How does that work then? You know, psychological history shows that many people in what outsiders would judge as a very non-ideal psychological situation actually are adapted to that situation in quite a functional fashion. This happens with hostages where, you know, the outsider looks with horror on the situation of the hostage, and the hostage is actually very much invested. This is bizarre, of course, is and this, abnormal. Uh, is this Stockholm Syndrome? Exactly, that's that's one situation. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not holding that up, of course, as an ideal. I'm just pointing yeah. out to you that what people can adapt to and live with can push the borders that someone outside the situation may look at it with great surprise. So it needs a sensitive handling and probably boils down to what's the pain of the alternative? You know, is it better to be in this, let's call it, abusive relationship where you've learned to deal with the perpetrator and handle them? Or is the loneliness of separation going to be better? And I'll leave you with this thought. I've been in many situations where people claim abuse as a motivation to leave, and actually they, they're using the word in a way that rather suits them. So you really need to get to the bottom of, you know, is it, a, is it genuine abuse? Is it a perception of abuse? Sometimes the two amount to the same thing, by the way. Somebody perceives themselves being abused that much just as bad as, as being abused. So this needs a broad and mature psychological counsel to help a person perceive the reality of the situation and what, if anything, can be changed. Maybe for a different podcast, but I've always wondered the awareness of abuse that you just mentioned and it being thrown about a bit too much. So on the one hand, you have people who are in abusive, they were abused earlier, they're in abusive relationships and they finally have, so to speak, a voice and they're believed that they never were. But on the other hand, it's, as you said, thrown around too much. What well, if that was a price worth paying almost? Yes, all I'm saying is this, when there's a cultural fashion Right, whether it's women accusing men of, of improper behavior, which is a cultural fashion or cultural trend at the moment. Some of that, of course, is good. It brings to light things that, that never should have happened and been hidden. And on the other hand, it can be, it can be overworked. So now we're going through a, a, a phase in society where abuse is a very conscious uh, issue at the forefront, both of childhood abuse and both in spousal abuse. And I think one just needs a little bit perspicacious attention to unraveling what really is going on in a relationship before giving guidance and, and advice. Okay. The next question was, a couple have a big life decision to make. I think this is pretty much relevant to 100% of couples. They have a big life decision to make, where to move to, the kids' education, what schools, you know, the, the day-to-day big decisions, fiercely opposing views. One wants A, the other one wants Z. How does one navigate that? Great question. There are a few very practical advices we can give here, which have uh, Judaism and time experience has shown to be extremely useful. Um, the first is consensus. So if you can work towards a negotiated consensus, that's ideal. It takes maturity, it takes knowing what to forego, where to step down, what's the bigger picture. And there are skills that we can help people with and teach them in terms of coming to a negotiated uh, settlement. That's one point. Second point. It's a priceless commodity to have an advisor outside of the relationship to relate to. Classically, in our world, a rabbi. Talking about a mature rabbi who's seen a lot of life, has insight, understands the cultural and personal and personal religious perspective of the people, the couple that he's dealing with. For example, let's say 
there'd be some disagreement about religious standards or levels. Or can we compromise at our parents' home because they're not as religious as we are? Whatever it is, there can be very inflamed issues. If you've agreed at the start of your marriage that questions like this, we put to Rabbi X, and we have accepted in advance that what Rabbi X says we will live with, wonderful, takes the heat out of the personal, takes the personal element out of it. Rabbi X knows very well what the religious issues are and the personal issues. Rabbi X is better able than you to balance is the kashrut issue more important than honoring the parents' issue? That's a Torah question, and the proper address for such a question is the rabbi. This is a tremendously useful, I would even go so far as to say life-saving um, resource, namely the rabbi that you have both, you have to both like him, you have to both accept that this rabbinical figure, or if it's a woman you're relating to, for your source of advice, which can be very useful to somebody you both accept, useless if only one of them looks up to that personality, the other one doesn't, and that can be a life-saving a form of arbitration. Finally, Judaism actually has a formula for resolving these issues. And to put it very roughly, our halachic sources say that there are two divisions in a marriage, and in each of them, the husband or the wife respectively has authority. To put it very broadly, what's called milidishmaya, which means religious issues, the husband should have the final say if they cannot reach consensus. When it comes to what's called milida'ara, which is practicalities, which is a very broad area, if consensus cannot be reached, the woman should have the final say. So let's see that again. A religious issue. The synagogue, they, they pray in specific halachic religious standards, except for the woman's halachic areas. If it's the kitchen, kashrut, food, or marital separation, menstrual separation laws, she is queen. In that area, no question about that. But when it's not her personal womanly area, when it's something that affects the family and the question is a halachic area and the man's competent in that area, he should have the final say. When it's practical, anything to do with the practicalities, the woman should have the final say. This is a wonderful formula for dividing responsibility. Although they do cross over a lot. Oh, that's a wonderful point. But before we get to that, let's talk about a... And if only Jewish husbands would understand that, the woman, you know, she wants uh, the, the, the living room painted purple with yellow spots. <laughs> you, Jewish husband, you love it. You love it. You not, No saying that at all. How the children are dressed. All the practicalities, she is the one who has final authority. This is a wonderful formula for separating responsibilities. Now, as you, as you correctly point out, there are some things that are crossover. The most important probably is money because there's no given authority in that area. And therefore, the formula, and as the Talmud puts it very sharply, when money troubles enter, love leaves. And therefore, when there's financial stress in a marriage, that's a recipe for disaster. The formula for success is an agreed system that you will use that's set up ahead of time. So, for example, separate bank accounts. And then, I'm sorry, darling, you know, when it comes to an income, or a household expense account and there's certain money put in every month when it comes to an end, it comes to an end. A recipe for trouble is, it's his credit card and she's using it. <laughs> and then there's an overspend and then there's tension. You know, this isn't part of our deal. But to her, it was very important to spend that thing and to him, it's a, it's a treachery. And therefore, you have an agreement beforehand. And that, and, and takes the heat out of the, sorry, we had an agreement, I'm sorry, there's no more money this month, we'll do it next month, you know. So money needs to be agreed beforehand. There's no given authority in that area. And finally, your point directly, indeed, there are many areas that cross over. And again, that takes a pre-specified agreement in whose domain is this particular area. There's a famous story about that. They once asked, the story is whether it's true or not, who knows, probably apocryphal story, but they asked Mrs. Rachel Salanta, one of the great masters of the, of the Jewish Muslim movement, they asked her once, 
Does your husband really observe this rule that it's religious, he makes the decisions and practical, you make the decisions? She said, no, my husband manages to show me how everything's really a religious decision and then he makes them. <laughs> but she said it with a smile, you know. So anyway, that's, I think, a, a, br- a brief approach to your question. So would you advise, just going on to that, would you advise young couples who they come to you and they ask, how should we, how should we do the finances? Would you advise the men to give the the wife a monthly spending would you advise her to have her own bank account what she earns as hers there's so many different options what was what's your favorite pick no what i think experience shows is the specific system is not so important it's the agreement about it that's set up beforehand in my personal experience couples very often choose a system that they think will work for them many loving couples want a common a common account two names on the account and they good with it mature enough to handle that and that's fine if you see it's not working because one is overspending and the other one is uh, which is a common tension, then you can you can split it. I've had couples who've decided to have separate accounts, no one's breathing down at e- each other's neck, and then there's a household account where a certain agreed amount is put in every month, and the agreement is when that comes to an end, comes to an end. So I don't think the particular system is importantly not laid down by Jewish law. I think that needs to be thought about. I would suggest that if it's a young and inexperienced couple, financially inexperienced, and you have somebody wise on the outside, a rabbi or somebody with business sense to advise them on what's say likely to be a workable system, that, that I think that would be a, an address to, to, to seek. Right. The next question was, we know it says in the sources that marriage partners are predestined, that two souls reuniting, they were there at the beginning. Is his stadless, how much should one do in this world, seeing that it's predestined, how much effort one, must one put in? Is it like uh, business, which is also predestined? How much effort should one put in to find a marriage partner? This concept of bashit or predestined needs a bit of clarification. I think we touched on it in a previous We podcast. did touch on it, yeah. Yeah. Bashit does not mean predestined. We do not believe in destiny. It's very important to know. Destiny means that no matter what you do, a predestined outcome will take place. Right in classic Greek tragedy, Oedipus is destined to kill his father and marry his mother. And no matter what he does, every ploy that he attempts to use leads him deeper into the likelihood of that happening. And indeed, it happens. We do not believe that. If we did, we'd be pretty much negating the importance of free will. Bashir does not mean that. It does not mean predestined. It means pre-set up as an ideal opportunity. In other words, these two parts of a soul were split in the spiritual world, brought down to find each other. But you can certainly mess it up. You can certainly, you can marry the foreordained other half of your soul, let's say. You could marry the woman and then divorce her. You, you could deliberately and immaturely reject such a person. By the way, this foreordained other half of the soul does not guarantee a good marriage by no means. It's simply the person who would be most, most likely to give you your opportunity to reach your perfection, mm. maybe through difficulties. And therefore, the practical usage of this Bashirt idea is almost zero. The young lady doesn't come with a flashing sign on her forehead saying, you know, I'm your Bashir. Hmm. And therefore, there's no real practical way to use it. So at the end of the day, you still need to make a wise choice based on your own heart and mind. And therefore, what effort needs to be made? A normal effort. A normal effort. What does that involve? Dating wisely, looking nice, smiling, smelling nice. <laughs> if you're a young man, wear a clean shirt. You know, if you're a young lady, smile. You know, there's a certain effort that needs to be made. How much effort? We have a deep tradition that you may make less effort in this area than for earning a living. I heard that from Rabbi Moshe Shapiro. Each area of life demands its own attempt. Should you vote in a, when you live in a country? 
isn't it preordained? Isn't the heart of kings and ministers and prime ministers in sure. Hashem's hand anyway? Yes, but you vote because it's an obligation. So you have an obligation. When it comes to earning a living, yes. How much effort should you make? A reasonable amount. You shouldn't go crazy and, and overdo it. When it comes to marriage, a certain normal effort. You don't have to visit every possible matchmaker in the world. And, you know, a young man cannot possibly date a young every woman on earth, even though I've come across young men who've certainly tried. But be that <laughs> as it may. And therefore, and therefore, one needs to make a reasonable effort guided by one or two or a few people who can help introduce you correctly. But one does not need to go to go crazy. One needs to know that there's a certain faith element to this. And although we go through very difficult experiences and many people in the appropriate amount of time don't seem to find the right the right partner, we're going through a phase where that is a, a painful issue. Nevertheless, I think that this boils down to good, wise, practical effort that certainly needs to be made. Yeah. Uh, uh, if I may add, not only to find the right person, but to hold on to the right relationship as well. When you meet somebody who has the right potential, not to be immaturely picky. In other words, to 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 learn to identify priorities and discard irrelevancies. Yeah, and you can listen to the first couple of podcasts on what to look for. Just on this subject of hishtadlus, people do a lot of things more spiritual. They'll do 40-day, they'll say the nishmast villa, they'll go to a grave in Amukkah that was known if you circle it seven times, almost... Uh, it sounds odd, but there's so many scholars one can do. Should one do them? Do they help? Scholars is a long subject in its own right. Uh, you're speaking to the wrong man here. I <laughs> have a resistance to this whole field. But I'll say this. Um, is that part of being a doctor, just more? No, no. I think I've picked it up from my teachers. Uh, just to give you an example, I once had the temerity, the very unwise audacity, to suggest a sculptor of Moshe Shapiro, not a good idea. <laughs> but the reason I allowed myself to do it, it had a medical component. It was a scula about a woman who was overdue in her pregnancy. And what I suggested was a certain scula, which is well known, but has a medical component as well. So I thought it was legitimate to suggest as a doctor mentioning it to him. And I mentioned the scula and with ice, with an icy voice said to me, Rabbi Kiva, why don't you just hang up a horseshoe? <laughs> you see, so the problem with schoolers is that they verge on this superstitious. So let's make our first point. When you verging on superstition, that is completely out of the question and indeed a Jewish prohibition. So let's exclude schoolers that are nothing more than superstitions. And unfortunately, a lot of Judaism today has been reduced to the superstitious. Hang this on your wall, put this around your neck, wear this around your wrist, you know, and you'll be fine doesn't matter who you are, your Jewish observance and your mitzvah observance is irrelevant, just do these ritualistic supers. That's out of the question. That leaves us with an area of schoolers that are meaningful, not superstitions. For example, there's a well-known stone that a woman can wear that is said to prevent miscarriages and loss of pregnancies, and this is well-established. It goes back centuries. It's certainly not frivolous and superstitious. Is that okay? I think this is really a personal issue. If you are a person not given to these things, you rely on your own mitzvahs and your own security in knowing you're doing what's right. Things like prayer, things like getting a blessing appropriately. People are certainly capable of giving brochas and people of more senior spiritual status can, can do that. Some are even specifically enjoined, for example, when a person has somebody ill in their family. What's brought quite clearly is to ask for a prayer from a rabbi who heads a yeshiva. Somebody supports you, Shiva heads you. It's well known. It's not a segula. So those sorts of things are certainly appropriate. When you get into the fringe area 
of wild and wacky, you know, peculiar practices after midnight in the deep forests of the, you know, Transylvanian, you know, <laughs> border. And when you see that it's immaturity, it's just grasping at straws, you know, ritualistic. That, I think, is to be discouraged. And in its place, once you take on perhaps a new mitzvah, a new kindness that you can do for other people, something that will build the world and build you, I think those are much more important than uh, than superstitious rituals. Okay, perhaps we could devote another podcast because uh, Rosh Hashanah is coming up, and we, on the night of Rosh Hashanah, we eat uh, various things that seem quite uh, scholarly, seem quite ritualistic. Um, but that's for another time. Yes, let let me point out those are called simonim, and we have a deep tradition to do that, and we we don't scoff at that at all. But the big difference between things that are in the mainstream of Jewish practice. Hmm. even when there are things on that level, and things that are sort of popular. You so, know, so you would say the telling sign would be how accepted they are and how far back they go? That, that, that certainly is an important criterion, yes. Or put it this way, that's a universally accepted practice in Judaism, eating apple and honey and so yeah. forth, right? That is a long pedigree, and we can rely on those yeah. things. But uh, not to approach them in a superstitious fashion, and certainly not the uh, you know current wave of very dubious and only superstitious practices. Yeah. Someone who is struggling to find a bashet, should they always prioritize finding a shidduch? Early 20s, mid 20s, early 30s? Or should they continue living life as normal? They should chase their career, they should carry on with their social activities. How much of a priority should one put to finding their bashet? Okay, excellent question as well. Let's talk about somebody here for whom marriage is very important. If it's a person who's not sure about getting married in the first place, let's say a young woman, she's in her 30s, whatever it is, she's ambivalent about marriage in the first place, she has a very fulfilled life. Let's not talk about that. Let's talk about somebody to whom it is very important to get married. It seems to them that their whole life revolves around attempts to get married and their whole emotional state is nothing other than a concern and a worry about this. It's very important for people like that to know that they need to get a life outside of that as well. It's important for two reasons. First of all, because who knows if you will or, or will not find your, your marriage partner. For those who do never find a marriage partner, such people, if they've defined their goal in life as marriage, will feel like failures. And that's a tragedy, unnecessary tragedy, which means that if you're not fortunate enough to be the kind of person that Hashem has given the right opportunity and you haven't found that person or you made mistakes in the past and did not take the right opportunity, that does not mean your life is meaningless. And therefore, it's very important to have a life that is meaningful, driving, driven, idealistic, passionate, in whatever other area you can. So for two reasons. First of all, it's important to have a fulfilling and fulfilled life outside of one particular single-minded goal, even if that goal is marriage. And secondly, a person who's happily engaged in many things or things outside of marriage is more marriageable. You just look better. You look more happy. You look well-adjusted. A person who's grasping at only one thing can, can have a certain tension about them that, that, that becomes palpable and is not a good idea. Not a good idea in the marriage market, if we can use that term, and also not good for them. And therefore, the summary answer to your question is no. A person should not focus only and single-mindedly on marriage. They should certainly prioritize it if it is their priority. Why not? But not to the extent that there is nothing left of the rest of their lives. Okay, Rabbi, Rabbi Tatz, that leaves us with just one last question, which we can't really end without discussing. This was asked by various people. Over-interfering in-laws seems to be a common prevailing issue. How does one deal with that? Yes, so the solution is to move to Alaska, <laughs> you know, with no phone contact at all, you know. You know. No, uh, this can be a very serious question. 
External influence in marriage, very often in-laws can wreck a marriage. Even a good marriage can be destroyed by in-laws setting up impossible emotional tensions and conflicts. When a young spouse is torn between their loyalty to their spouse and loyalty to parents, and these relationships can be ruthless. So many elements of advice. First of all, in the dating process, who are the in-laws? Important. And if you see that they are so menacing, you know, and so um, brutal, that this is going to destroy that, you've taken into account in, 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 in making the choice. If one is in a situation like that, the next level of advice is clear setting of priorities. Clear setting of priorities. You have just got married. You're a young woman. You've just got married. You're very close and bonded to your parents. Your husband comes first. That's very important. That's very important to redefine the priority correctly. So, for example, the Code of Jewish Law states explicitly that when a woman marries, she drops her obligations to her parents. Again, there's their limits here and their borderlines. She may not dis, dis, uh, dishonor her parents, but if her father asks her to spend time with him and her husband wants him to spend time with him, she spends time with the husband. So you need to know the halachic parameters. Here, again, a knowledgeable rabbi external to the situation can be a lifesaver as well. So point one to acknowledge these can be absolutely lethal assessment of where the priority lies. Once you've got your priorities clear, you, you cease to live in that, that twilight zone of tension between two conflicting loyalties. That becomes very important. I'll give you an example. Here's an example from the halachic literature. Ramosha Feinstein has a response, a mature in which he received the following question. It's a young woman, married woman, whose one of her parents had died within the year. And she was very, very anxious to fulfill the mourning rights of honoring the parent and mourning correctly for the year. As you know, that, that, that precludes going to things like weddings. Well, there was a wedding in the husband's family and it was very important to him that his wife would go with. And she felt as a betrayal of her parental duty to mourn correctly for a parent. On the other hand, was a tremendous marital tension. So she writes to Moshe Feinstein, what do I do? And his answer is very interesting. He answers this. He says that the mourning for a parent does not fall under the laws of mourning. Mourning applies only for 30 days. There are no exceptions to that. The laws of mourning apply only for 30 days. The reason you show respect to the mourning laws for a year for a parent falls under the category of honoring a parent. Now, a married woman does not have to honor a parent when it's conflict with the marital duties. Go to the wedding. So you see that, very important to clarify, and of course she went with a happy heart. That's indeed what she was meant to do. So yes, interfering in-laws can be extremely easy. I would like to end this session with a heartfelt appeal to in-laws. Stay out of it. <laughs> if you're an in-law or a grandparent, your job is we say schweigen, schlingen und schenken. That means shut your mouth, swallow it hard, and open your purse. Right? <laughs> the job of an in-law or a grandparent is to not give advice, don't give criticism, just pay. And I think that sums it up. In other words, you, you need to know as an in-law and there can be ridiculous tensions over cultural issues. You know, you're from a, you know, you, they married somebody from a cultural group that you don't, or a, an ethnic group that you don't, you know, see eye to eye with. You can destroy your children's marriage very easily by being an unreasonable and overbearing in-law or grandparent. Once your children marry, they are independent. Here's a good rule. Until the day they marry, be as heavy-handed as you want. Okay, they're your problem. As soon as they marry, they're someone else's problem. You know, um, rising in my own life, my mother was a very, very strong personality and very, very demanding. Her standard was perfection. 
And, you know, she made no mistake about making it clear to me what my duties were. Okay, so for example, you know, it's seven in the morning. Why aren't you up? You know, you know, you've got you know work to do, etc. The day I got married, the day I married, my mother said to me, "Wouldn't you like to rest some more? But can I bring you breakfast? What can I do?" In other words, until the day I married, I was her problem, and her duty to perfect. From that day on, I was some other lady's problem, you know. And now, from that moment on, she showed me only total and amazing respect. Uh, had you known before, you would have got the marriage way earlier. I certainly would have. I did. <laughs> Yeah, um, final question, Rabbi Tatz. Yeah. If anyone calls you tomorrow, the in-laws call you tomorrow, and they say that I could see my son, my daughter, and they're 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 clearly suffering. They, I, I could help them. I could, you know, if I spend two hours on the phone every day, my my daughter loves it. She complains about her husband. I'm helping them. What are you talking about? There's a big difference between listening and giving uh, unasked for advice. If your daughter needs to call up and vent, and you're listening here, and you cluck along and tut along sympathetically that might in fact be appropriate i would say even in that situation the mother's duty is to show her daughter how to help that means to take responsibility for her own marital relationship being a listening ear fine but interfering and telling what to do and taking sides that can be disastrous thank you very much robert that brings our marriage series to an end thank you and we haven't yet discussed what we're doing next, but there have been requests following marriage to do an education episode, possibly series. So we'll discuss that. But thank you all for listening. And as usual, any feedback or comments should be sent to podcasts at jleave.org.uk. Thank you. Thank you.